He is risen. Oh, come on. He is risen. Okay, we're going to delete that first one from the recording on YouTube. All right. We are more excited than this. God is good and God is faithful. So I've got some questions to start out um, today. How many of you, for this occasion, this year or any year, buy a new outfit? How many of you are wearing a new outfit that you've never worn today? That's fewer than I thought. Well, there goes my illustration. How many of you got up early, made yourself smell really good, did your hair up, all that kind of stuff this morning? I did my hair. How many of you trimmed your beard a little closer than you meant to today? I I did. I did. Um, But it's very stylish, the the shadow that nobody can see anyway because my hair now blends into my skin. Anyway, um, it happens. It happens. It used to be a lot more red than it is now. It's somehow not, uh, not there anymore. You know, I had a red beard until the same year I became a parent and a pastor. And I'm not sure which one caused that. Now, I know the hair was gone before then, so I don't, I don't know. Anyway, um, this morning we celebrate what God has done for us. And, and I know you guys look great. I'm not trying to dis- dismiss anything with that. Everybody looks good today. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you smell good. I'm glad you look good. Um, but in all honesty, we present our very best this time of year, generally because we know there will be photographs. Go on to social media following the service, and you will see all kinds of families with their beautiful Easter pictures, and by all means, show off, because you look good. But here's the reality of the resurrection. Even in our best, even as we have worked so hard to look good and smell good, it is counted as filthy rags before the glory that we find in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is why we gather, and that is why we worship. This year, I've I've told you, and last Sunday we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians on the resurrection. Now, that may sound a little odd until you look at the text we're going to read, and some of those verses have already been shared this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we'll be. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. And really, the theological ramifications of this passage ring throughout this chapter. We're only going to touch on the first 11 verses this morning. But the resurrection is what this is all about. And it's not just Christ's resurrection. It's the resurrection of eternity for those who trust in Him. And that's what this is about. It's about trust. If the story ended at the tomb, we wouldn't be here today. It would have just been another guy out there saying some things that didn't make a lot of sense, and then he died. But because of the resurrection, what he said makes sense. 
And the disciples even said that in their writings. They said, we didn't know what he was talking about until the resurrection. And here's the deal. For us as, as humans, without understanding the reality of the resurrection, we can't understand Jesus. Because Jesus is not just a simple moral teacher that said some good things that we must follow. Well, he is that. He's not an itinerant preacher who went and did good things for people all throughout the land that he lived. He was that. No, he is the risen, crucified Savior. And he is the God of the universe who paid the price so that humanity, not just the Jews, but all of us, might have salvation in his name. And we celebrate that today, and we look at the resurrection. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I invite you to stand as we read some of what we've already read, but we're going to go before and after that as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Father, teach us your word, that we would trust in you and believe in your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. 1 Corinthians is, is an interesting read. One of the things that's really challenging about this letter that Paul writes is that it's a church, to a church that is utterly messed up. And I don't know whether all of you have read through 1 Corinthians. It's the second longest of Paul's letters in order. And we talked about that last week. Paul's letters are not written chronologically in the Bible. They're written, they're displayed to us longest to shortest. And in the first group of letters that he writes is to churches, and the second group of letters that he writes are to individuals, and they are organized like that as well, longest to shortest. The longest that we have is Romans, and that's where we were several years ago. It took, I, I actually even got a, a reminder of it this week that it took like a year and a half or two years to get through Romans. We're not doing that right now, but next week we're going to start Galatians, which is the book following the Corinthian books, First and Second Corinthians, and it's probably, more than likely, Paul's oldest letter. Now, what we read here is the earliest written account that we have 
of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, you go, wait a second. I talked about it last week a little bit. What about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The Gospels were written probably in the, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, the similar Gospels, were written between 55 and 65 A.D. They were written as the, um, as the disciples started to realize that they were disappearing from earth. They said, we need to write these things down. And so they wrote down these accounts. And then John is very different from the Synoptic Gospels. It was written in A.D. 90-ish. I wasn't there. I don't have the date and time stamp on it. It's not like they posted it to Dropbox and said that appeared on A.D. 90 on February the 2nd or whatever. You know, that's not the way it worked. What we found is that as these disciples lived their lives and and, and told the stories, they realized that those who knew the stories were beginning to meet their reward of eternity with Christ. And so they write them down. Now, 1 Corinthians, Paul was believed to have been martyred around A.D. 60. He was beheaded. I like my head. And... For the most part, within the American culture of Christianity, we wouldn't see that as a threat. Now, throughout the world, even today, we would see that the church is under fire. The church is being attacked. And some would say that the American church is being persecuted. If you think the American church is being persecuted right now, I challenge you to see what's going on in South Asia and Africa. We might be mocked. We might be insulted. But friends, we, we know not what real persecution is. We don't. And we need to pray for the church around the world that is undergoing, even this day, persecution. Where it is genuinely dangerous to proclaim faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we can go out on the internet here. We've been doing it for two years now and nobody's bothered us about anything. Even when they said we weren't supposed to be gathering together and you know, this and that. No, they didn't bother us about those things. And sometimes I think we as Americans get lulled to sleep. And that we could use a little bit of suffering in order to wake up our need for our Savior. I'll leave that there. That's not really where I was going today. That's called a rant. Okay. However... When we look at God's Word, we need to realize that Christ came at a specific point in history to fulfill the Word to that point. And if you've been, you're in our church family and you get emails from me, you'll know that on Good Friday, I didn't, I didn't read from the Gospels. I read from Prophecy, Psalm 22, where you see a graphic illustration of the act of crucifixion through the mouth of David by his pen. But it described a thousand years before the time that crucifixion was even used, what the suffering servant would endure. And then in Isaiah 53, another couple of hundred years later, we see the, the picture of the servant that's crushed for our iniquities. And we find that without the death of Christ, we have no forgiveness. And so when we see the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we need to remember that our sin comes with a cost. And that is our lives. 
We don't die because we get sick. We die because we're sinners. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We get sick because our bodies are broken because of our sinful nature. We deal with illness, we deal with loss because of our own problem. Christ now comes as the righteous judge and as the righteous sacrifice, the Lamb of God takes on the penalty of our sin on the cross. And so many things are fulfilled on Good Friday. So many ways we find Christ fulfilled in the Old Testament through prophecy. And, and I read those two passages for our church family intentionally because for whatever reason, that, that fulfillment that is Jesus' life and his sacrifice on earth for the last couple of years has just been at the forefront of my mind. But again, if he had stayed there, that would have been the end of it. We wouldn't be here today. What we find then is that he rose. And you see those accounts, and we read Matthew 28, which is probably my favorite one to read on Easter, because it says, He is risen just as He said. He told the disciples over and over, in Matthew chapter 12, we see the account of the, uh, the story where He says, there, No sign will be shown to this generation except for the sign of Jonah. Three nights in the tomb. And He rose. And we see that His fulfillment comes with a price, and that is the perfect sacrifice. Another thing I saw this week, and I, and I meant to pull it up, and I spaced out this morning and forgot to get it in the outline, but it was a testimony of Charles Colson. And if you know who he was, he founded Prison Fellowship Ministries. He was a lawyer for President Nixon during Watergate, and he spent time in prison because of his role in that. And he said, one of the reasons, this is paraphrasing because I didn't write it down. One of the reasons I know the resurrection to be true is that because 12 men who saw it died for it 40 years later. 12 men who were caught in a lie couldn't hold it for three weeks. The 12 guys that were the initial uh, problems in Watergate. And he says, that's one of the main reasons I can know that. Here's the deal, is that if it's true, people will stand for it. And here's the deal, is with the, the New Testament, what we find here is that it exists because Christ is alive. And we have the testimony of that. What do we find here? How does it play out? I love in verse 1 here the, the terminology he used. Many of you might have heard this before, but uh, I'm no Greek scholar. You guys should know that. But it, it says here, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Now, the, the terminology that's used in Greek there, it says, The gospel I gospelized to you. Now, think about that for a minute. Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians already, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute because it matters, has talked about the foolishness of the gospel that is preached. Here's the deal with preaching. A lot of people say, don't preach at me. Well, that's the way people hear the good news. And the very act of genuine preaching is gospelizing, 
And the good news is that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin and that He rose and He ascended on high and He's going to return for those who are faithful to Him. That is gospelizing. Now, the gospel I preach to you, verse 1, I got caught up in it. What you received and what you stand by, what you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, unless you were just faking it. God is faithful. I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. Three things, verses 3 and 4, show us. One, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Pastor, I thought we were talking about the resurrection today. Here's the deal, is that Paul, even in 1 Corinthians, starts with this. Go back to chapter 1, just a few pages back. I marked it in my Bible to get me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Now, 1 Corinthians 1 is fascinating because it builds the whole argument of why Paul writes this letter. And he's writing this letter because this church can't get along with itself. So all along the way, and it's a, 1 Corinthians is a challenging book, and it's one of the reasons I haven't dived into it is because it's a little intimidating, even for the preacher, to dive into all the things Paul is dealing with. But where he starts at the beginning is here. He talks about the wisdom of men versus the wisdom of God and how they're two diametrically opposed things. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So he sets this as like a, this this is a long Paul sentence, by the way. If you haven't looked at the Apostle Paul, he really likes long sentences. And says, and then, and then, and then, and then. This is one of those. He asks the question, who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where are all the people in this world? Corinth is a, is a major city of the day. It's, it's like, the, uh, it's like wa- New York to Washington, D.C. Which is a more important city? Really, it's a toss-up, right? You see all the laws in, passed in Washington, but you see the culture come out of New York. This is the same kind of thing between Athens and Corinth. Corinth is a very important city. It's really just not very far from Corinth at all. Or from Athens at all. Come on, Greg. So what we find is that these people are influenced by all kinds of different things. And the church of this day is starting to kind of mix together between Jews and Gentiles. Why is that important? Well, they didn't, they didn't get along too well. And what Paul's saying here 
is that when you come to the cross, it's a problem for everybody. Why? Because the Jews want to do their own thing to fulfill the law. To think that what they offer is going to be enough. And the Gentiles want to debate everything and come up with whatever works in their own minds. What does that sound much like to us today? I don't think the world's changed very much in the last 2,000 years. Because in many ways, those in the church and, the, and those in the secular world do the same thing. Even this week, I've seen people post things about the pagan roots of the word Easter. You realize that word's not in the Bible? It's one of the reasons I've tried to say resurrection a lot. We need to realize that we, we, want, to, we want to redeem the world. We want to see the world redeemed in Christ. So yeah, we pick up some of those words along the way. Just a spoiler alert, Christmas isn't December 25th. Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. I just blew some of your minds. Easter comes at the fulfillment of Passover every year. That's why the date changes. It's because it's done on the lunar calendar. The Jewish calendar, Passover moves around. What was the Last Supper? Passover. We talked about that this past week in our church family. We had a, a Seder service on Tuesday evening. And so that Last Supper where Jesus really fulfills things for us is a picture of what God's plan was the whole time for redemption. And so now, here, we see as he preaches Christ crucified, it says in verse 23 of chapter 1, he calls it two things. Number one, he calls it a stumbling block to Jews. Why? Because it shows that they can't save themselves. And number two, it's foolishness to Gentiles. Or it says in this translation, folly. Have you ever had try, tried to just have a conversation with a lost person without, about Jesus who has no context to what the Scriptures say? That's crazy talk. And so the, to the one who has no idea what's going on, what do we need to do? We need to pray for them. We need to love them. We need to display what Christ did for all of us because it's through what is preached that the Word comes alive. And all of us are called to be proclaimers of the Gospel. Not just up here. This is kind of an intimidating spot, honestly. And really, it's a very intimidating spot on Easter Sunday. Because if you have an expectation any other Sunday... You really do today. And the preacher's not wearing a jacket. <sighs> he didn't even own a vest. He can't get it around his belly. So anyway, that's not what's going on there. No, what, what matters is the resurrection. But you don't have the resurrection without the crucifixion. We want to think about what was good and beautiful and, 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 and the glory, but... The, the glory did not come without the suffering. Christ's penalty is because of His great love for us. 
He knew that we can't do it. He knows that we're going to stumble. He knows that the very best way we can look and the best way we can smell and the best things that we can do, they're all filthy rags before Him. But He doesn't, he doesn't leave us there. He offers us hope. And yeah, to the one who's never heard it before, it's going to sound pretty goofy. It's going to sound pretty strange. But if you look at what, what happens, we realize that there's no other way that it can happen. And it calls us to the place of ultimate unity before the cross. Because the very best that anybody can offer is nothing before what Jesus has done for us. And so whatever your position is in this world, however big or small your paycheck is, however nice or not nice a vehicle you drive, whether or not you mowed the lawn yesterday, whether or not you trimmed your beard a little too close on Easter Sunday, or whether or not some of you might have one and you might just hide it from us. I'm just kidding. What we see is that what we do, what we have, it's nothing. What we receive is what matters. So we preach Christ crucified. Go back to chapter 15. First of all, in accordance, he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Secondly, that he was buried. That's Good Friday. He was placed in the tomb. They rolled the stone in front. The, the ladies came. Well, remember what, what some of the gospel accounts tell us is that they ask themselves the question, who will move the stone for us? It's a big old rock. But if you read Matthew chapter 28, how does it say that the stone was moved? It's an earthquake. God himself did it. And he moved that stone, not so Jesus could get out. And we, I've had that conversation with, with some of you guys this morning already. Not because Jesus needed it to get out. Because you remember later that day, he just appeared and disappeared out of thin air. The God of the universe can do what he needs to do. He's the author of all creation. He's not limited by things like we are. No, he moved the stone so that we could see that he rose. And it is in the promise of His resurrection that we now find life. And how do we have evidence of that? We have that evidence through the testimony of the Gospels. We see that each of the four Gospels carries different details about that account. They're not all identical. But if you go into a room and something big has happened, you're not going to remember the same things I do about it. You might remember the major detail of what happened, but some of you are going to remember the color of the carpet. I'm probably not. I was talking that with Kate, Caitlin this morning. Everybody in our family would see something different if we walked into the tomb. We would definitely see that the body's not there. But in one of the Gospels, they saw two angels. In another gospel, they just saw, in the other Gospels, they just saw one. Some of them saw the shroud. Some of you know All these different things along the way. We don't see the details of it, but that actually lends itself to its legitimacy in like a legal sense. Because if there's a judge standing before us and 
the people who see the events tell them about it, and it's all identical word for word for word, what is the judge going to think? They probably had a meeting before this, right? You're going to get some different details if, for, if you have different perspectives. And that's what we find in the Gospels. And here in this account, we see that he appears in different ways. In verse 5, um, after his resurrection on the third day, he appears to Cephas. Oh, that's a new name. Who's that? That's Peter. That's the Aramaic name for Peter. Then to the twelve. Who are the twelve? The apostles. Well, I thought there were only eleven. Judas killed himself. They still called him the twelve. When you got a name, you stick with it. Right? Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That is a unique account to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the only time we hear about that, that he appeared to 500 people. But you might be able to fool one person with a disguise, maybe two or three. You're not going to fool a whole crowd of people. They're going to know he's for real. Then he appeared to James. Who's James there? It's uh, more than likely his brother the Lord's brother. Then, and, and you see his, him referenced in Acts chapter 15, if you want to go look at that later. Don't right now. And then to all the apostles. Last of all, it says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Who's me? That's Paul. Go to Acts chapter 9 to hear about that, to read about that and learn what happened. Christ had purpose for this persecutor of the church. How do I know he is a persecutor of the church? It's right here. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And when he says he persecuted the church of God, he is the one who's held the coats as they stoned the first martyr. The end of Acts chapter 7 into Acts 8. Saul, the young man, stood by approving what was happening. And he was the one that was heading to Damascus with letters to persecute the church in that area, the the Jews who had become believers in Jesus Christ. But God had reason to work through him. And he appears to him, as he says, as to one unnaturally born. He was blinded for a few days. And then when he proclaimed his faith in Christ, he was healed. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So here's Paul. He was a persecutor of the church. He was one who was trying to live out the law as much as he possibly could. But he was wrong. God spoke. He trusted him. And now he has purpose for him. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. You and I, whatever we do, however good we think we are or however bad we really are, we are the same before the cross. That's what Paul's telling us right here. He killed Christians. The Lord saved him and he became the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the guy who wrote this down. 
Do you think it was a little hard to trust this guy at first? Why do you think he did? <clears throat> why do you think he disappeared for three years into the wilderness before he showed back up and talked to Peter and James and all those guys in Jerusalem? Read Galatians. Oh wait, we're going to start that next week. He talks about that then. God's grace. You may think you are the most wicked, awful person, and you've done the worst things ever. Did you ever kill anybody for their faith? The guy who killed people for their faith wrote this down so that we can know it. God's grace reigns over it all. The resurrection, the promise of his return. We sang about all that stuff this morning. I mean, you can, in, in, in the rest of chapter 15, you want some pleasure reading? Go after that. Send me your emails later because there's a lot there. The rest of chapter 15. But what we find is the resurrection is what it's all about. The resurrection is how we find life in Jesus' name. It is his promise of the Spirit that is his ascension. He said, hang on, I'm coming back. The first way he comes back is through the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity. That word's not in the Bible either. It's something we pulled together. Tree, tri, tri, three in one, deity, trinity, okay? His first promise is the seal of the Holy Spirit. And if you know anything about a seal, it's permanent. Doesn't change. His promise is that he now will return. And the question we ask ourselves is, are we ready? Most of us would say, yeah, I'm ready. Have you seen what's going on around here? That's not the, that's not the context of this. Context is our, is our life ready. Do we know Christ? Have you trusted him as your Savior? I've, I've thought a lot this week about how life, and for whatever reason, there's no real cue to it. I'm not trying to be morbid or anything, but how quickly life can end. All of a sudden, it's over. More than once this week in our city, I saw testimony of crime that led to the death of somebody who that morning wasn't expecting it to happen. That's why the world needs the gospel, by the way. We don't know when it's going to end. But also, our lives, I mean, I could drop now. I don't plan to, but I'm not the one in charge of it. We don't know. God is though faithful. If we trust in Him, He gives us the promise of eternal life. So the question now is, what do you do with the resurrection? And I know I've gone after 12 o'clock and it's Easter, right? I had a couple weeks off. I'm still making up for that. God is coming back. Jesus will return. Are you ready? Lord, thank you for the resurrection. And I pray for the one who needs to trust in you today. I pray for each of our hearts that will be ready to receive your grace. <clears throat> 
pray for your salvation in each of our lives. I pray that we would trust you. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for your death and your suffering. I thank you for the rest of Saturday, the Sabbath, and the hope of the resurrection. May our lives be evidence of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand together, and this is your opportunity to respond to what God has called you to in salvation.